0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 30th, 2021, and this is show number 838. Well, we got a big show today, got a lot of stuff going on, so we should probably just get stuck in right away. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is an installment of Programming by Stealth. And in this episode, Bart teaches us how to use GitHub as a public repository for our code, or for, you know, anything we write for that matter. He reviews why he chose GitHub, and then we dig right in. He does explain the benefits of using SSH to access GitHub instead of HTTPS. And if you haven't set up SSH keys before, or you're rusty on the topic, he includes links to our sibling show, Taming the Terminal, where you can learn how to do it. In this episode, we create a new repo from scratch in GitHub on the web with a readme file and a license, and then we get to use a command line version of GitHub called GH. With GH, we pull the repo down from GitHub, we edit the files, we commit them locally, and push them back up to GitHub, all from the command line. We then flip the tables and from the command line, create another repo directly on GitHub. Again, locally on our local machine, we're using the terminal, only stuff's happening up on GitHub. It's really cool. We create some files, we set them up to track and we push and pull again to prove the whole thing's working. It's surprisingly easy and simple. Now Bart's teasing us with the next episode where we're gonna learn how to create a website using GitHub pages, which will give us a nice place to host our web apps for free. You can follow along with BART's fabulous show notes, of course, at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can subscribe to this podcast by looking for Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. After I originally wrote up this article I'm going to talk to you about, I realized I may have come up with a subject that interests absolutely no one but me. You see, this is about knitting like a programmer. How many of you listening both program and knit? Well, I mentioned this problem to Bart, and he explained that there's a long history of the intersection of programming and textiles. Bart went on to explain that programming punch cards have their origins in weaving. He pointed me to a Wikipedia article about the Jacquard machine, which was designed to program a loom to automate the process of of weaving. From the Wikipedia article, it says, The machine was controlled by a chain of cards, a number of punched cards laced together into a continuous sequence. Multiple rows of holes, multiple rows of holes, were punched on each card with one complete card corresponding to one row of the design. So I don't know, maybe this intersection of programming and knitting will be of some interest after all. Well, I've been programming for a few years now, but I've been knitting since I was very young. I actually taught myself to knit when I was around nine years old, learning from a magazine or a book, as I recall. I can distinctly remember learning the stockinette stitch at the kitchen table and being so frustrated until I figured out that the dumb instructions did not tell you to move the yarn from the back to the front as you switch from knit to purl and back again. Once I figured that out, it was smooth sailing. Now, I haven't knit for a very long time, keeping my fingers busy with crocheting and cross-stitching for at least the last 25 years. But my daughter-in-law Nikki chose a knitted pattern for the baby blanket I'm making for my future grandson. It was time to get back in the game. Now, execution of some knitting patterns wouldn't benefit from thinking like a programmer, but the particular pattern I'm working on just cries out for it. Knitting patterns, and crochet patterns for that matter, will give you row-by-row instructions, but whenever a complex bit is repeated, they'll often throw in an asterisk on either side of the instructions and say, repeat from star to star. In programming, if you're going to repeat something, you make it a function so that you can repeat it predictably. Already we can see that knitting and programming have something in common. The problem I was trying to solve was that this pattern was written in a very complicated way. This resulted in constant mistakes on my part until I started to break down the pattern in a different way. If you look at the photo on the cover of the instructions, you see an alternating pattern of big square blocks. Every other big square block is either called checked or striped, and there are four rows of big blocks, so you can have 16 big blocks. The instructions call these rows of blocks sets. On the first set, it's blocks of check, then stripe, then check, then stripe, and on set two, it's stripe, check, stripe, check. The photo is critical to figuring out this pattern because down in the weeds of the instructions, it's very difficult to see this big picture view that I've just described. The pattern describes the sets in a very complex way. Let's say you're on row 26. Row 26 is not explicitly explained. It says that row 26 is row 21 in the check pattern. Okay, what's row 21? Well, row 21 is a repeat of row 1 in the check pattern. I'm not making this up. So you basically have to do like a lookup table, and I created two lookup tables, but it was like looking doing two coordinate transformations in your head. I tore out many rows many times. That's when I tried to start thinking of it as functions, and it became much clearer to me. Let's think of the check and stripe blocks as functions, because inside each of those blocks, we have a set of instructions. We're going to call them stripe block and check block. So we have function stripe block, do stripe type stuff. And then function check block will be do check type stuff. Now let's dig down inside these two functions. The instructions for the stripe block function de- define explicitly what to do on rows one through eight. All of the even rows, so 2, 4, 6, and 8, are a simple purl stitch all the way across. So we could think of the purl rows, even, the even ones, as their own function, which we'll simply call purl. Rows 1 and 5 are a simple knit stitch, so we'll define a knit function for those rows. That leaves rows 3 and 7 for the interesting functions. Both rows 3 and 7 are what create the look of the stripe pattern. It's what I'd call like a bumpy looking row created by alternating knit and purl. But to make it a little more interesting, rows 3 and 7 are offset from each other so the bumps don't line up. For that reason, we have to define two functions, which we'll call stripe3 and stripe7 to correspond to those two rows. In the stripe3, we're going to knit two, but then 15 times we purl one, knit one. Well, that sure sounds like a loop in programming to me. The stripe7 function is just slightly different so that we get the offset I was talking about. Instead of starting with knit 2, it starts with knit 1, and it ends with an extra knit 1 at the end. But it has that same loop inside where you repeat 15 times. If I was refactoring this to clean it up, I'd probably define our little loop for, of P1K1 15 times as yet another function. Now the reason it's helpful to think of this knitting pattern as the series of functions is that this group of 8 rows gets repeated 5 times. So that's a total of 40 rows in one stripe block. So I put, I've actually written out all these little uh, pseudo functions that I'm describing in the show notes if you really wanna go through and look at them. Now this would be a great stopping point if the check block repeated at the same rate internally as the stripe block. But no, the inventor of this pattern made them repeat at different rates. So remember, the stripe block functions uh, through its cycle every eight rows. So you do one through eight, you do one through eight, you do one through eight, you do that until you get to 40 rows but the check block cycles every 20 rows. So this wouldn't be so bad if the two blocks were interdependent, or were independent, I should say, but they're not. Remember, we're going across, we're making a stripe part of a stripe block, you know, a row and a stripe block, and then we do a check block, and then a stripe block, and then a check block. So that means that at eight rows, we have to start a repeat over again for the stripe block, but we don't yet change the check blocks. At rows 20, though, the check blocks start their repeat, but the stripe blocks are not changing on the row 20. It's really, really, really hard to keep track of this. Now, I know you're really hoping I'll go through the pseudocode for the check blocks, but out of brevity, I just put it in the show notes. Now, understanding this pattern at this fundamental level was critical to being able to even tell if I'd messed up, but it doesn't actually help me knit each row. I can't run these functions. I still have to create every single stitch one at a time. I pulled out one of my favorite tools when working on crafts, Notability. I wrote out all 40 rows of this first set by hand using the Apple Pencil on my iPad Pro. I wrote the stripe instructions in green for each row and the check instructions in red. That's like syntax highlighting, right? That turned out to be invaluable in figuring out where I was. Since I'd figured out the pattern in a programming way, once I had 20 row numbers written out, I could copy and paste between the rows to reduce errors. For example, in the check block, Rows 1, 3, 11, and 13 are the same, so I could write it out just once, copy and paste it three times. Once I had the 40 rows written out for the first set of four blocks, I could finally start knitting the pattern predictably. I sit in my easy chair with my iPad Pro in the Magic Keyboard as a stand. I open a Notability while I knit, and I use the Apple Pencil to check off each row. On a few occasions, I've been knitting in the car, and the iPhone is a more practical tool for that environment. Well, Notability works on both platforms and on the Mac and syncs notes perfectly between these devices. I can zoom way up on Notability on the iPhone and use my big fat fingers to make my little check marks in color and it works surprisingly well. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not still making mistakes with this process, but I have a much better feel for the pattern with the process I just followed. After I finished the first 40 rows, I got to start set two. So set one was stripe check, stripe check, Set two is check, stripe, check, stripe. You would think that I could just grab the blocks and swap them, but I can't. I still had to write out every single row by hand again because of that darn cycling eight rows versus cycling by 20 rows. I was able to do a fair amount of copy and paste, but I couldn't just pick up the blocks and switch them. That didn't work. Well, the bottom line is that it baffles me how normal people knit. This pattern is rated easy, and yet I find it very complicated. My suspicion is that the difficulty rating is weighted more heavily by the difficulty of the stitches themselves, rather than the entire pattern as a whole. This really only has knit and purl in it. There's no cable stitches, no ribbing, no stockinette, so I'm thinking that's why they think it's easy. I'm having great fun making the blanket, and while the journey in this kind of craft is half the enjoyment, I can't wait to wrap it around my new grandson when he makes his final arrival.
1: We now have a fabulous review by Wally Cherwinski. A while back, I got together with our good friend Bart Bouchatz on his Let's Talk Photography podcast. And one of the things we talked about was how hard it is to get good shots of places or tourist attractions when there are always crowds of people around. Well, soon after that, Allison sent me a note and she said, hey, did you know that the Affinity Photo app has a great feature that lets you remove people and moving objects from photos? Well, the idea is that you take a bunch of photos, maybe 20 of the same thing, let's say a building, and you don't have to worry about people or cars going back and forth in front of it. Because you can import all of those images into Affinity Photo on your Mac. You can stack them and then let the app do its magic. And you end up with a clean shot of the building itself without all of that stuff moving around in front of it. Well, I I didn't get a chance to try it out. But then I saw something the other day that sounded even better. And that's the Camera Plus iOS app which has a feature that'll do all of that right on your iPhone. Yes! It's called Monuments Mode and it uses artificial intelligence to subtract moving objects from your photos as you shoot. Wow! Now that's something I had to check out. So I went downtown to some of our local touristy sites Unfortunately, most of them aren't terribly busy these days, so getting a good photo wasn't too hard. So I had to find a place with lots of people and lots of activity to put the app to the test. My solution was our nearby Costco superstore. Now I know it's not the most photogenic subject, But, it's always buzzing with people, bicycles, cars, shopping carts, you name it. So I took my iPhone there, set up on a tripod, and went to work. Well, it's pretty simple. Just set the app to Monuments mode, touch the shutter button, and voila! The whole process takes about 5 seconds, from shutter press to final image. Now, behind the scenes, the camera is taking a series of frames, and the software uses machine learning to detect and filter out movement. Then, it aligns the frames and puts them together into a single image. Final result keeps the static portions of the scene, but it makes the moving elements disappear. How cool is that? I'll put a couple of before and after photos into the show notes. Now, I I must say, I was really impressed. Not that the results are always perfect. Sometimes you'll still see some artifacts or smeared objects in your photos. And that often happens when the things you want to get rid of are moving too slowly while you're taking the picture. So they don't completely uncover what's behind them. And the same thing when they're moving directly toward or away from the camera instead of perpendicular to it. No worries, though. It might take you a few tries before you get just the shot you want, but it will be worth it. Also, unless you have a really, really steady hand, I'd recommend using a tripod, a gorilla pod, or find some way to support your camera while you shoot. So that's Camera Plus version 2. It's $7.99 in the App Store, and for that, you get a full-featured pro camera app that's one of the best around. If you're into photography, it may easily become your daily driver. Plus, the new Monuments mode is a fantastic bonus feature that you can use to capture special shots that you might miss otherwise. Well, that was
0: fantastic, Wally. I, uh, yeah, that definitely cost me whatever it was, seven or eight bucks. Cause as soon as I heard your review and, and looked at the app, I knew I had to have it. And it is so much more than just what uh, Wally has described. This is a uh, a pretty capable photo editor and it supports Apple Pro Raw. It's got, uh, I mean, it's a it's a full on camera app and I know a lot of people have talked about Camera Plus for a long time but it's really, really capable so I'm going to be digging into it and learning a lot more about Camera Plus 2.
1: Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. It's time for Dumb Question Corner.
0: Well, Joe from the North Woods, who is a recovering Windows user, asks our dumb question this week. She says, Are Macs like Windows in that desktops are for heavy-duty work and laptops are portable but typically less capable? And are all-in-one computers for lightweight users? It seems as I look at it, the Macs are all the same, but what differs is if it has a built-in monitor, battery, more ports. If I wanted to buy a Mac to run Windows, do I lose or gain anything by picking a MacBook Pro, a MacBook Air, a Mac mini, or an iMac, other than attached hardware like monitors, ports, and battery? Well, I love this question because my answer can do nothing but generate emails to me that start with, well, actually, Allison. You would think that this question would have a provably correct answer. While there are facts that can be proven, it's a conclusion that's difficult to exactly quantify. But that will certainly not keep me from trying. I think the context for the answer is important. Let's look first at how I would have answered this question in the Intel days before Apple introduced the M1 Macs. In the most recent Intel days, we had four types of Mac computers. Mac Pro, Mac Mini, iMac, and the suite of MacBooks. You know, the MacBook, MacBook Air, and MacBook Pro. If we define heavy-duty work machine as the one which will allow the user to replace and add high-end processors, memory, graphics cards, and disk, then the Intel Mac Pro is definitely the winner to that question. The Mac Pro can currently support 1.5 terabytes of RAM, 4 GPUs, 8 terabyte SSD, up to 12 4K displays, and up to 28 core Intel Xeon processors. We're not just talking about selling a kidney to buy this one. You'd have to sell off at least two of your children to be able to afford it. If you compare any Mac laptop or iMac all-in-one to this top-end, maxed-out computer, then the answer to your question of whether desktops are for heavy-duty work and laptops are less capable, then the answer would be clearly yes. Okay, but let's get real. Let's change these constraints. First, let's assume that you didn't mean to compare a $52,000 computer to a laptop. Yes, $52,000, that's what it costs fully loaded as I described it. At its lowest configuration level, the Mac Pro starts at a whopping $5,000, which is out of range for most people if they aren't employed by Pixar. So that narrows the conversation down to the Mac Mini, iMac, and the suite of MacBooks. Things get a bit muddier when you ask about heavy-duty work versus portability once you eliminate the Mac Pro. If you're a professional photographer shooting 60 gigabyte RAW photos out in the field... The workhorse you need can't be a desktop device, it must be a notebook. The MacBook Pro was designed for the heavy-duty user who, by design, requires portability. The MacBook Pro line is bifurcated. The 13-inch is more portable, but less capable than the 16-inch. Apple designed the 16-inch to allow up to an 8 terabyte SSD, for 64 gigabytes of RAM, an 8-core Intel i9 and high-end graphics processor options. It's a bargain when spec'd out at this level, it's only $6,500. The Intel 13-inch Mac Pro, MacBook Pro is limited to a 4GB SSD, half the RAM at 32GB, and half the processor cores with a max 4-core i7 and it can't take an i9. So it's not just the extra 3 inches of screen space that makes the 16-inch MacBook Pro the top of the line. I have a 16-inch MacBook Pro and I seriously dislike the weight and footprint of that device and I wish I could have gone smaller in size but I needed the high-end specs for the audio and video work that I do. Now I would contend that the 16-inch MacBook Pro is for heavy-duty work in spite of its being portable. The iMac was bifurcated in the same way as the MacBook Pro line with a Pro model of its own. That Pro model was not only souped up, the thermal system was redesigned to allow for more efficient and thus quieter fans the Pro line was completely discontinued this year, so we probably don't even need to go further down this product line for now. Now, the Mac Mini was neglected for ages and ages, but two years before the M1 Macs were announced, Apple dramatically improved them to be quite capable little workhorses. You could put a 6-core Intel i7 in them with 64GB of RAM and a 2TB SSD. These were something along the lines of the 13-inch MacBook Pro when fully loaded, and if you had your own keyboard and display, they were quite affordable. Many companies also use them as little compute servers in a rack. If companies are using them as compute servers, I kind of think that makes them qualify as workhorse machines, doesn't it? Well, I spent all that time telling you about the past, and the M1 changes absolutely everything about this conversation. Apple chose to put the exact same processor with the exact same RAM in the diminutive... I have trouble with that word, I don't know. I always put it in places. They had. They put the exact same RAM in the diminutive MacBook Air the 13-inch MacBook Pro, the Mac Mini, and the new 24-inch iMac. All four of these machines are nearly identical in performance with some very slight subtleties. All four of these machines blow just about every other PC and Mac out of the water in single-core performance. They're no slouch in multi-core performance either. In single-core performance, the 13-inch MacBook Pro beats all of the previous Apple computers by more than 50% in Geekbench stores. I'll get it yet, Geekbench scores, including this $6,000 entry-level Mac Pro with Intel Xeons. In multi-core performance, it beats all but the Mac Pro, including the top-of-the-line Intel i9 16-inch MacBook Pro. All models of M1 Macs top out at 16 gigabytes of RAM, but the new design is so if darn efficient and the SSDs are so wicked fast that even swapping to disk is barely noticeable. So now you're faced with the question of what is a workhorse? the MacBook Air doesn't have a fan, which is absolutely glorious. The 13-inch MacBook Pro does have a fan, and that's the subtlety in performance I mentioned. Because it has a fan, the M1 processor can clock up faster and be kept cooler than the MacBook Air, giving it a slight edge in performance. So I'd have to say that the 13-inch MacBook Pro is a workhorse. For now. Now, it's highly rumored that a a WWDC in, what, a week? We'll be seeing the true Pro models of Apple computers announced. For example, these true workhorse machines are expected to have additional Thunderbolt controllers. The current lineup of M1 machines only has two Thunderbolt ports, which most Pro users find overly restrictive. I use all four of mine on my 16-inch MacBook Pro whenever I work away from my dock so the current models would meet my audio and video needs. The new models are also expected to support more RAM, and it will be interesting to see if they are better performers in multi-core work. 24 inches in an iMac is considered low-end, so the 27-inch iMac is expected to be included in this new lineup, along with the 16-inch MacBook Pro, which did not get an M1 in the previous announcement. There's also a strong rumor that there will be a 14-inch MacBook Pro announced as a higher-end model. I'm personally very interested in a workhorse machine, and while the 16-inch Intel is a beast, it also weighs around 12,468 pounds, and it's giant. I'm talking two hands to pick the darn thing up. If I like the current M1 models, I'm sorry, if like the current M1 models, we don't sacrifice performance for notebook size, I might downsize to 14-inch from 16-inch, assuming the size rumors are true. So with M1, you pretty much don't have workhorses versus low-end laptops. They're all the same at this instant in time. We'll find out in a week whether that will change when the high-end machines are updated, but I'm guessing that with the exception of the Mac Pro, you'll choose your form factor and then be able to choose workhorse or not within that form factor. But guess what? Everything I've written here does not answer your final question. You asked, If I wanted to buy a Mac to run Windows... Do I lose or gain anything by picking MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, Mac Mini, or iMac? The M1 processor in the newer models is an ARM architecture processor. The Windows you're used to running runs on Intel processors, not on ARM. There is a version called Windows for ARM, but it's not available for end users, or at least not yet. For now, there are some janky ways to get it to sort of work, but it sure doesn't seem like the path you'd really want to follow for day-to-day use. There's a very good article at Macworld that I've linked to in the show notes that walks through the problems and how to sort of get around them using Parallels Desktop, but it's it's pretty squirrely. It seems inevitable to me that Microsoft will eventually make Windows for ARM a real operating system that users can install on an M1 Mac. In fact, Microsoft just announced that they're teaming up with Qualcomm to create a Windows on ARM developer PC that will be available this summer. The purpose of this product will be for developers to create ARM 64 apps for Qualcomm's Snapdragon-based PCs. Without developers porting their apps to ARM 64, there wouldn't be much point in Windows on Apple Silicon. This seems to me to be an indicator that Microsoft will, or at least could, take the next step to eventually make Windows on ARM available for Apple Macs. So... The final question to your qu- or answer to your question is that if you're in the market right now for a Mac on which you can run Windows, you would have to buy one of the remaining Intel-based Macs rather than the new hotness. In fact, a friend of mine did that recently for that exact reason. The reason you get my podcast delivered into your podcatcher each week is because of a magical little text file often referred to by terms such as RSS file or feed file or podcast feed. RSS stands for Really Simple Syndication. This file contains the information about the name of the episode, the show notes, and a link to the audio or video file for the latest episodes. In the old days, circa 2005, I hand-coded this file, which was annoying. I'm glad I had to do it by hand because I'm not afraid of the file and often I could spot what mistakes I may have made if an episode doesn't get delivered properly. Today there are many ways to create this file. There are WordPress plugins that will create it, and the podcast hosting services like Libsyn and Blueberry and others will both create it for you if you like. Instead, I chose to use—I choose to use—an application for the Mac called Feeder from Reinvented Software to create my feed. It's a terrific text editor. It automates adding the album artwork, and I've recently begun to trust it to send my audio files to my server. It's been able to do that for ages, but I was afraid to try it until recently, but of course, it works very, very well. This is all background to tell you about an awesome new feature that the developer Steve Harris has recently added to the tool, and you care about this. You may remember that a few weeks ago, I explained that Apple has seriously broken the way Apple Podcasts app works. Remember, I told you that episode 91 of Bart's Let's Talk Photography podcast hadn't shown up for more than a week after he posted? Maybe it was a month. It took forever. Well, Jim wrote to me this week to tell me that show 837 of the Nocilla cast had not come into Apple Podcast for him at the expected time. It did show up eventually, but you know, I pride myself on how close to schedule I keep my shows. The good news is that Apple has actually somewhat acknowledged the problem podcasters have been having. In a recent email to podcasters, Apple wrote, and I'm quoting, over the last few weeks, some creators have experienced delays in the availability of their content and access to Apple Podcasts Connect. We've addressed these disruptions and we encourage creators experiencing any issues to contact us. So that gives me hope that they will fix another huge problem they created. And that was how they broke links in the show notes. And that's the part that really irritates me. I explained in detail in my previous article how my carefully crafted links are simple text now in the show notes if you use the Apple Podcast app as your player, which approximately 40% of listeners apparently use. The main problem is that if you use human-readable link text, Apple just shows the text and it doesn't let it be a proper link. I knew I didn't have the energy to write up two different styles of show notes, and so I decided at the end of writing that up and thinking it out, I just stuck my hand head in the sand on this whole issue. But then, Steve Harris sent out an update to Feeder that promised to give me an automated way to give Apple podcast links, uh, listeners the links they deserve. I made a little video to show you how delightful the process is. Even if you don't have a podcast and you don't need to make a podcast feed, I think you might enjoy watching this magic in the 1 minute and 46 second video that I created. For those who can't see the video, the process is lovely. Podcasts can have a description and an episode summary. The show notes normally go in the description field and I've never bothered with the episode summary. I'll confess, I never even noticed it was there because it's hidden by default in Feeder. You have to turn it on in the View menu. Steve explained that the episode summary is what Apple Podcasts will use if it's available. After I go to the description field and enter all my lovely handcrafted links that the Apple Podcast ignores, I can now swap over to the episode summary in Feeder. Then in the menu, I can choose Editor, Episode Summary insert description with links, and boom, the exact same content that I put in the description field is instantly added to the episode summary, but it's showing all of the ugly HTTPS colon slash slash blah 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 so that Apple Podcasts will recognize it. It's a beautiful thing. I tested it like 12 times because it was just so much fun to watch it go. Until Apple fixes this mess they made, Feeder has become a huge boon to all of you who enjoy your podcasts via the Apple Podcasts app. I'll tell them you all say thank you. I often have people ask me whether I have an affiliate code for a certain service because these kind people want to make sure they can help the show. This week, I spent some time cleaning up my text expander snippet that I put in every single episode of the podcast. The most important thing in the show notes are the links to the blog posts, so those will always come first. But in my new and improved snippet, the blog post will be followed by two categories of links. The first section is entitled Join the Conversation, and there's where you'll find links to our Slack and Facebook communities. To be honest, talking with you in the community is more important to me than money. But you know, I like money too. That's where the second section comes in. It's entitled Support the Show Affiliate Links. So now I've got links to Patreon, PayPal, my Parallels Toolbox affiliate, learn through Max Sparky Field Guides, and you can shop for Podfeet shirts. I hope this helps you make it easier for you to find the best way for you to support the show. Again, just look in the show notes and it'll always be there. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for security bits with Bart Shot. So, welcome to the end of May, Bart.
2: Yeah, it certainly feels summery here. Uh, we have a holiday weekend next weekend, and the sun is already out here. It's, uh, it's been two good days in a row. This is this is this must be summer. <laughs> two, two days,
0: miracle, miracle. All right, what, what kind of nasties are uh, churning in the internets today?
2: Um, we have a good mix of stories, actually. Yeah, uh, three shallow, deep dives. <laughs> <laughs> Not really just, sure how best to describe them. Just up to them. the knees. Yeah, I mean, they were they were too big to be one story because I thought they were worthy of a little bit more of a look. But none of them are particularly propeller beanie like they're not. Uh, they're not difficult, but they're oh, okay. interesting. Well, we have a few little bits of uh, feedback and follow up, so it's all follow up to stories we've covered before. So I, I sort of chuckled to myself a little. Um, but uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security have published cybersecurity rules for pipeline operators. I have no idea why they've just done that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not not at all any coincidence. Yeah, yeah and definitely not
2: connected to colonial pipeline.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but it's good, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely And, and, and um, still,
0: looking back, they did the right thing, right? They shut everything down, even though it wasn't affecting everything, and made sure that none of their suppliers got affected by what happened to them, and it wasn't the exactly. worst reaction.
2: Well, yeah, and all oh, right things happen and what all you can do is choose how to respond so if you choose to turn it into a learning experience well then that's no bad thing so if if some good comes out of all of this and at the end of the day it didn't you know it was a bit of a kerfuffle but it didn't cause anyone to run out of petrol or whatever it you know it was fine it was an inconvenience it looks like yeah yeah exactly and it's been a learning experience so you know on the whole could be exactly like you say it (laughs) could be worse it could be
0: raining Exactly.
2: Um. We have talked many times over the years about various problems with Vizio televisions. And uh, really, I should have applied my own logic of follow the money because we now know, thanks to Engadget, that uh, Visio make almost as much money from the ads and the data that they sell with their televisions or from their televisions or about their television users as they do from their actual televisions. So they're not really a television company so much as they are Facebook who provide your own hardware. So I was pretty sure I didn't want a Vizio television within a million miles of my sitting room. And I'm now pretty certain that this business model does not comport with my um, sensibilities.
0: So I bought a Vizio TV this week. <laughs> However, Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. However, uh, yeah, we have a bunch of them in the house. We just don't connect them to the internet.
2: Assuming they're, do- assuming they're happy enough to do that, then that seems like a sensible thing to yeah, do. Yeah, we hook and them I'm to Apple you- TVs. Over at HDMI... HDMI. HDMI as a person, Right. Yeah.
0: Right. So uh we when we bought the new Apple TV 4Ks we did a flow down and the TV we had in the kitchen didn't have an Apple TV which kind of annoyed me cuz I like to watch Apple TV content anyway it had a, it had a um that one wasn't on the internet either it was connected through a Tivo so now we got one with two uh HDMI inputs we've got an Apple TV and a and a, a Tivo and I never turn on the internet on any of those my big Sony is not on the internet Good. on its own.
2: Probably wise to be honest because the television, none of the television companies have shown themselves to be particularly competent. Uh, but Vizio have the business model problem as well as the questionable competence problem.
0: So there's the a reason the it perhaps. only cost me 120 bucks for a little 24 inch TV, then. So
2: you're kind of sticking it to the man, actually, by buying a television intended to, 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 to make its money off selling you, and then you're just denying it that opportunity by never plugging in its ethernet cable.
0: I like it. Exactly. So, well, Ti- Ti- TiVo's busy selling me ads, so that's good.
2: Well, given that you pay for them, they shouldn't be. But anyway, that's, that's how they hear yeah. it there. So the other thing is, a while ago, we talked that Troy Hunt was uh, talking about the future of Have I Been Pwned, and he was going to open source it and sort of step back, uh, sort of turn it into yeah. something that's bigger than him. So that has now happened. It is on GitHub, just to tie in with yesterday's recording. Uh, but oh. he's also managed to arrange a deal with the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. So as they come across stuff while investigating cybercrimes, they will be adding to the Have I Been Pwned open source database.
0: Oh, wow. So, uh, for those yeah. who are following um, Programming by Stealth, when Bart said our recording yesterday, Programming by Stealth, we were introduced to GitHub just yesterday for open source. So that's exactly what he was talking about.
2: That's cool. It is cool. So I'm, I'm pleased with that. Um, yeah. So that brings us on to our first shallow deep dive. Facebook have been caught with a new trick. Uh, some sleuthing by Forbes has exposed yet another way Facebook are choosing to certainly get around the spirit of the law while arguably still sticking to the letter of the law. So whether, regardless of whether you use your operating system level settings to deny Facebook access to your GPS location data, or whether you use Facebook's internal setting to not track your location, or frankly, both. Facebook don't care, and they will still infer and store location data based on EXIF metadata embedded in photos. So you have told them very clearly you do not want your location tracked, and they just do it anyway. So they take so for people not aware, EXIF is a metadata standard for uh, JPEGs and MPEGs, I guess you could put it in other files too, but it, it's a metadata format. And one of the fields supported in EXIF provide for GPS coordinates to be added to images or videos. So this is why it's possible for Apple Photos to plot your photographs on a map or to automatically group them in a folder named after the place you've been. You know, how does Apple know I was in Disneyland? Well, the EXIF data is how they, those photographs were grouped together into that smart folder, etc. So for a long, 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 long time, Social networks have been stripping EXIF data from photos as you upload them, so that you can share a photo on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and it won't immediately give away your location data because that was initially they forgot to do that, and that was a right. major big pir- privacy calamity. But that's
0: I remember ago. when they changed that, so I assumed they weren't storing the EXIF data.
2: Most of them aren't, apart from Facebook. <laughs> who, even when you tell them not to do, track your location data, they're like, oh, no, this isn't location data. This is photo metadata, so we're perfectly happy to sort of that. And they then use it to target you with location-based ads. So you have said, I don't want my location tracked. They've gone, yeah, but well, you've uploaded this photograph, so we're going to take the location data anyway, and then advertise that you based on that location data. So the authors over on Forbes suggested two possible defences. There are share sheet apps for iOS that let you basically share a photograph through the app, and it will strip the metadata as it passes the photograph through. Ah. So you would share the photograph to the app and then from the app to Facebook or Instagram or anything of any of Facebook's properties, because Facebook hoover the data up and all their properties. And that way you would clean it out before they get to it, so then they can't snag it. Uh, the other suggestion they give is not to upload images or videos to any of Facebook's properties, and I have a third suggestion: delete your account. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's I'm mean, being somewhat tongue in cheek there because I do understand, especially in the in our post-pandemic or our post-start of the pandemic world, I'm a not less flippant of people who choose to use questionable technologies to have some human contact. Because I myself, am on Instagram, not Instagram, the other one, WhatsApp, that messenger app. WhatsApp, WhatsApp that's the yeah. one. I am a reluctant WhatsApp user because. Yeah, family contact is more important than my feelings on privacy.
0: the uh, grumpy
2: about it, but I still do it.
0: <laughs> you know, I've, <clears throat> I've been pulling back from using Facebook, just just participating less, uh, you know, contributing less to it. And, uh, and then I saw a report that Facebook is continuing to increase its user numbers at a higher and higher rate than ever before. And I was like, well screw it if everybody else is doing it you know why I'm just one little voice I'm not you know eh. you know short of canceling your account what am i what am I accomplishing I'm just having less fun
2: yeah I mean you just have to I mean you're you're very aware of the trade-offs so it's not like you're being tricked you're choosing very carefully what you know the benefit the not benefit how do I balance them and like you say some you know at some points in time you balance it one way and at other points of time you balance it another way and I don't have any issue with anyone choosing to balance differently to me. I just, I hate it when people don't think about it. Yeah. And Facebook really want you not to think. Like, they really, really want you not to think. Um, Which is why they describe asking people for informed consent as blocking. Do you ever notice how Facebook say Apple are blocking people? It's like, (laughs) no, they're just asking for informed consent. But strangely enough, your entire business model was based on uninformed consent. And now that it has to be informed, you're all cranky pants about it. Anyway, (laughs) wasn't planning on that one. Anyway, uh, so we have two fire extinguishers to wrap up our our shallow deep dives. So there is a story getting a lot of airtime about an unpatched bug in Safari that Apple were told about three weeks ago and it's still not patched. Well, there are definitely facts in that sentence, but there is something way, way, way more important. There is absolutely, positively, no need to panic because we, as iOS users, are in no immediate danger. So that is the first thing, just to get out of the way. No
0: danger. And this is an iOS some Safari facts, bug, not a macOS Safari bug. Uh, I,
2: <coughs> I think. I, okay, sorry, it's. Uh, I think I said Apple user in the show notes. It, it's. It doesn't matter. The okay. The, the, the. Okay. Apple the, user the, in general. Okay. Apple users. Yeah. All right. So it is true that there is a bug. And Apple have not yet released a patch. But Safari is a very well-protected app which uses the concept of defense in depth. So there isn't one protection to stop a bug in Safari causing a vulnerability. There are many, many layers of protection. And this vulnerability only breaks through one of the layers. So it's like having a castle with a moat and giant big walls. Yeah, they've bridged the moat, but they're still up against the wall. So right now exploiting this bug cannot actually achieve anything. There's a hypothetical future danger because another additional bug or probably collection of bugs could be found which could be chained together with this bug into an exploit chain that breaks through all of the protections. But that's all hypothetical future problems. So it's okay for Apple not to to rush out a fix that could introduce a bug or whatever, it's okay for Apple to take their time on this one because we're not actually in any danger yet. The whole point of defense in depth is that it gives you the ability not to have to run around like a headless chicken all the time.
0: Because it takes this stacking of problems to all converge in order to cause the problem. The the boat and the drawbridge and uh, and and the bricks behind it.
2: Exactly. So what I actually found much more interesting about the story than the bug itself was actually the story of what they meant when they said Apple were told, because that, <coughs> that's not really <coughs> true. That makes it sound like a security researcher reached out to Apple, told them about a problem, and Apple went neener, neener, neener. But what was actually went on is something much more interesting, and it's actually an entire class of problem that exists in the open source world, so much so that it has a name. So what actually happened is that someone found the problem in the open source WebKit, which is the rendering engine at the heart of Safari that's open source. Mm -hmm. It used to be KML. Apple then became very active in it and turned it into WebKit. And so the open source community found a bug in the open source WebKit engine, and that bug was fixed. So there was a patch pushed to that WebKit, and that patch hasn't yet propagated upstream into Safari. So So they weren't notified
0: as much as a patch exists and they haven't updated yet.
2: Yeah, exactly. (coughs) So this actually happens in a lot in open source because there's a lot of open source projects with dependencies on each other where you have something upstream of something else. So it's actually called the patching gap because it's such a normal thing. And what I also thought was interesting is that there's actually a term for exploiting a vulnerability while it's in there. So if it was a case that the vulnerability was in an app that wasn't as well defended a safari, then one layer of protection being broken could be enough to actually be a problem. So if you exploit a vulnerability that's actually exploitable in that gap between the downstream or the upstream being patched but it not being pushed all the way through to every dependent project, that is called patch gapping. So exploiting such a vulnerability is patch gapping, which I hadn't heard before, so... To be, to be honest, that sounded more interesting to me in this story, the the, the whole potential. You know, there's, there's lots of good things to open source, but a potential problem is when you have upstream dependencies. If that gets fixed, then you really need to be quick as the owner of a downstream project if it's actually exploitable. yeah. So right, if this right, were right. a situation that it was an exploitable bug, then I would say this was actually irresponsible disclosure because they should have contacted Apple privately before publishing a public fix on the open source project. But since it's not exploitable, yeah. I don't see any reason to do that. So, okay.
0: But yeah, that's an interesting angle on that. Hey, backing up just a little bit, you mentioned yeah. uh, Facebook talking about uh, Apple blocking things from you. And I assume you were talking about the uh, the opting AT. out of yeah. being tracked? Yeah, the App tracking transparency. Yeah. So I thought we should check in with Flurry.com. We talked about them the oh, last yes. time. Uh, let's get an update here. So this is the site that is tracking uh, worldwide and U.S., um, how many people are opting in to being tracked. Uh, and they've added a couple of graphs, and it, it might make this even more interesting. So right now, the two charts Ooh. we talked about before were daily opt-in rate. Uh, uh, worldwide, it's up to 15% of opted in, and in the U.S., it's 6%. So it's gone up a smidge, it's kind of bouncing between 5 and 6% for the last week. Um, so the U.S. is still you know, pushing a third of what the uh uh what the worldwide opt-in 100%. rate is. But there's another chart. Now they have worldwide daily opt-in rate across apps that have displayed the prompt. So that's huh. different. Apparently, I mean you could go in and opt-in before you got asked, right? Because some they're rolling out slow rolling out this prompt. So you may not have been prompted, right. but you may have gone in and said, well, just in case Hulu wants to track me, I think I'm going to press this button. I, I don't know. So that, that chart now doesn't have as much meaning to me. So now if you look at the ones that have displayed the prompt, worldwide, yeah. 24% of people have opted in to being tracked. And U.S. 14% have opted in. So it's a lot closer together, but the U.S. is still well below what the uh, worldwide opt-in rate is.
2: Yeah, yeah. I really would love a further geographic breakdown. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: You want to see it by region at least, like the EU versus China versus India. Right, and
2: India, India is sort of very big on my mind as well these days. With my Let's Talk Apple hat on, I'm sort of... Very curious about the Indian market, because India is the new China, right? A few years ago, we were all talking about Apple breaking into China. Well, they're pretty well broken in, mm-hmm. but India is now the, the, the big... And, uh, and they've
0: been doing a lot of interesting stuff with privacy. I know, um, oh, there was something, the EU is not allowing, was it the the WhatsApp connecting of data between WhatsApp and Facebook? They're not allowing that? Uh, th- well, because the EU have an issue
2: with that. Well, no, actually, the EU's issue is subtly different. So, when they approved the merger of those two companies, one of the conditions for that merger on an antitrust basis was that the data wouldn't be merged, and Facebook promised they wouldn't. Right, right. And now they are, and so on an antitrust level.
0: But it's not being merged for the EU because of that. And India has now said... If you can do it for them, you can do it for us. Do it for us. So, right, India's getting really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, it would be great to see this broken down. Maybe we should have a, a, a weekly or bi week, bi monthly check in on Flurry to see how this is working because maybe they'll get some charts with a further breakdown.
2: Well, I mean, they're only going to learn more about it, right? It's literally their business to track this stuff. So, they're only going to get better at figuring this out. So, definitely, I'm curious to see how that keeps evolving as as we all settle into this new world. Yeah. Okay, so that's two out of three se- shallow deep dives. So our third shallow deep dive, the Miracle M1 Unpatchable Vulnerability, where Miracle is spelled with a one, so it's M1 Rackle. Um, So it is, yet again, a true fact that there is something which is technically a bug that is baked into the new M1 chips, but yet again, there is literally nothing to worry about here. So there are two bits, as in two, one, two... Two bits, like not bytes, two bits in a register that is not used in the M1's chip that shouldn't be writable and readable by, not the kernel, so by normal apps, but they are. So if you have at least two pieces of malware already installed, those two or more pieces of malware can have a secret very, very, very slow conversation with each other over those two bits. <laughs> That's it. That is the sum total of this vulnerability. It cannot be used to make an exploit. It cannot be used to get the malware in. If you're already riddled with malware, it can have a very, very slow chat behind the OS's back. <laughs> That's it.
0: The way the security researcher wrote this up is just hysterical. It's worth it's worth reading uh, basically any of these links that has uh, supplied Take you to. You can go read the guy's original uh, description of it, and it's and it's hysterical. He does a little Q and A, and it's really funny because part of the point of what he produced was to say this is a perfect clickbaity title that has absolutely no substance behind it. There's nothing. I'm nothing in my title has lied, but it makes you think that the world's on fire, and it's absolutely not. But Not we we that. got into discussion with uh, Bob Goodrich, in our Facebook group was saying, "Yeah, but this is on nine to five Mac, and that's a fanboy site, you know." And I don't trust them to really be telling us when something's wrong. And I said, "That's great. That's really good that you doubt them and keep that, you know, keep that filter going. Like especially if anything out of Allison's mouth, because you know I have an ever so slight Apple bias. But follow the link to the researcher who said it. You don't have to believe. who yeah, actually did the trade. work." <laughs> Yeah. anyway i, I would say to be
2: honest nine to five mac i i actually have they're one of the sites i have great respect for because they're not clickbaity and they're they're honest sure you know, they're, but he doesn't
0: know that right he just, i know yeah he sees a happy apple site in general you know
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, as i said there's only some sites i trust to use as sources for let's talk apple or, or this show and you have to earn my respect. So one of the this is a perfect litmus test. This is the kind of news story that I use to judge whether or not my choices of what doesn't mm. doesn't make it into my RSS reader is correct, which is why sites like The Register are nowhere near any of our show notes because <laughs> they wouldn't know they wouldn't turn down clickbait if their life depended on it.
0: <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> they can take a perfectly rational story and change the title to where the world is coming to an end. Yep,
2: exactly. So this is great because Naked Security, Ars Technica, 9 to 5 all of them within the blurb, like within the first, you know, one half of, of an eye width from the headline, it says, and there's no need to panic. And that to me was just confirmation that I'm using good sources for these show notes because yeah. it's not clickbait. It's actually sensible. Right. So anyway, there's our shallow deep dives. In terms of action alerts, it's one giant big one. Apple patched almost everything. So patchy patchy patch patch. Um, I, I gotta ask you, actually, when
0: you when you see the they patch every single operating system, do you hear Ken Ray in your head saying uh update a go-go? Oh, I do. That's what he always yes, calls it.
2: <laughs> update a go-go. But it really is update a go-go here. Um in particular <clears throat> though, there actually are some some key things to point out. There are quite a few uh, critical security vulnerabilities, but one in particular was found to be actively used in the wild. Mm. Now, it's not a hack your computer exploit, but it's an exploit that gets around Apple's privacy controls. So an app that shouldn't have access to stuff like screenshotting or your camera or your mic There was a bug, which has now been fixed, which would allow such an app, which didn't have permission, to piggyback off another app's permissions and to basically sneak, like sneaking someone's ID badge to walk through the door. Oh, wow. So that has been nipped in the bud, but that was actually being used to take screenshots by some malware. So that is an important one to patch. And there's a slight sting in the tail for Apple Watch Series 3 owners. In order to get the latest iOS update onto your Apple Watch, that was causing no end of trouble for Series 3 Apple Watch users They were reporting all sorts of problems. Apple have found a fix. You have to do a unpair and repair of your phone before you update, which is not at all a pleasant fix. So that has turned the software update into a chore for Apple Watch Series 3 owners. But remember, folks, it's really important. So yes, it's a chore, but still patchy, patchy, patch, patch.
0: You know, uh, my first reaction, because I'm a snob, is always, well, that's a really old Apple Watch. I mean, you're just lucky they're supporting it. But you know what? They're still selling the Apple Watch Series 3. So this isn't good.
2: On the one hand, I mean, it's, it's, it's very annoying. But on the other hand, at least they got to the bottom of it, to the point where Apple Watch Series 3 users can protect themselves, even if it is a chore.
0: How about test the update on everything you sell?
2: But it didn't fail 100% of the time, right? So the problem with Apple is that they have so many users that if if something affects 1% of users, that's thousands, not thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I was telling Bart before we started that my desktop is littered with folders that have the word debugging in them: audio hijack debugging, loopback debugging, uh, text expander debugging, Apollo Solo firmware debugging. I am so tired of debugging everybody else's stuff right now. I'm I'm. It's like just fix it.
2: Okay, I've just decided I'm doing a third palette cleanser because I think you're going to actually get some use out of it. I was going to keep it in my back pocket, but you know something? It's too relevant. Okay. Uh, John Gruber linked to to an app called Unexpectedly, which has got to be the best title. It's an app that can parse those bloody crash dumps in the console app and display them to you as a syntax marked up proper like a code editor proper view
1: no way but it doesn't
2: just have the the markup it also has a button to collapse them into expandable and collapsible sections so you can actually scan through it in a meaningful way
0: oh so i would you a thousand dollars for that
2: <laughs> yeah it's free it's uh, it's called unexpectedly so I will pop that in uh, I'll get you to pop that in as a third palette cleanser from for the show notes today Wow it's it's really nice I only have one I only have one crash log on this Mac <laughs> but
0: it definitely made it make more sense isn't that adorable so, one crash log <laughs> what a charmed life you live pardon. <laughs> I was hoping oh. ironically for the first time ever I was hoping for more <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that would uh, that would be great. I mean, I, I, the, the vendors are all working with me. It's not like they're just giving up on me. But it's like some of these folders, these are, are six months we've Thank been working you. on trying to figure out what's going on. So and, and I would be more sympathetic to them if I hadn't just done a clean install. Right. When I know it's not me, you know, I mean, maybe it is me because of the things I put on in the three months since I did the clean install. But for crying out loud, I don't think I should bother. I should just keep loading junk on here because it's going to go wrong anyway. Okay, rant over.
2: Everything is fiddly. (laughs) Someone has a whole segment about it. I can't remember who. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Moving on to some worthy warnings. Just the one. Um, And when I first read this story, I thought, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I was about to click next, but it was from Naked Security. And they have sort of earned my, no, no, give it a second look, Bart, filter. Uh, and so on the one hand, this is a very straightforward story. Eight suspects busted in raid on home delivery scamming operation. I was like, yeah, 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 I know about home delivery scamming. You send people a phishing email that looks like it's from some sort of local courier. And because everyone's getting everything ordered online, people fall for it. Because it's, if I send you a random email pertaining to be DHL, there's a really good chance DHL are due to deliver something to your house sometime soon. Because it's 2021 and that's how we live now. But... There was a twist here that I did not know was being done by these shower of so-and-sos. So the new twist on this is that they, they, if they succeed in actually getting you to enter your credit card details, they don't just use them to go buy something online. They assume that you will realize you have been scammed and contact your bank. So they wait a few days. And then they pretend to be your bank, and they come back to you and say, "We're investigating that fraud you reported to us." And then you now trust them as if they were your bank, and so then they end up mm-hmm. talking you into transferring all of your money into a new account that has been secured against what happened to you there
0: oh, recently. Jeez, but they so caught I'm these like, people.
2: Oh. Yeah, they, they arrested eight people. Yeah, so well, let's that's put good. it
0: this way: they caught these people. <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. These kind of ideas, if they work, they do not remain isolated, right? If it's a way of bad guys making actual money, it's going to happen again. So Alison's advice remains the correct advice, right? If the contact is initiated with you, instead of you initiated it by phoning a number you know from somewhere, not your email, not your SMS message, some number that you have saved, then be suspicious. If the bank ring you and ask you to do something, tell them you will call them back. Because a legitimate bank will say, that's fine. This is your case number or whatever. But an illegitimate bank will do everything they can to keep you on the phone. Because if you call your real bank, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. You know, now I'm thinking back to not following that advice. Um, It hasn't happened in a long time, but I used to have a a credit card where they would they would call me like no matter what i did with my credit card they'd call me up and go hey did you actually do this transaction but it would be the real transaction that i just did and it would be the most ridiculous things possible like i bought something at apple.com hey sweetie <laughs> If I go a month without buying something at Apple.com, you yeah, ought to Apple.com. just assume my card's canceled. That's, you know, look at my history. Why do you call that suspicious behavior? Or or every year I paid uh, Wired Magazine $11 for a subscription. They called me on that one year. So how was that suspicious? Well, it was a small amount. Well, I'm sorry. I'll call yeah, them and tell them to magazine. charge me more. You what? Know? <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's an algorithm that's half working. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, that doesn't seem too dangerous to just say, yes, I made that charge. But if it's correct, anything beyond right.
2: that. Yeah, exactly. But always be suspicious when you're asked for something of, of value. If they, and they could Like authenticate yourself? Easy.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Just, just be careful. Uh, just remember who started the call. When mm. you're asked for information, just remember, did I start this call or did they start this call? Because when I ring the bank, they make me jump through all sorts of hoops to prove I am who I say I am. When they ring me, I have no mechanism of making them do the same, which I think is deeply unfair. I should be able to set like a secret phrase on my account that the bank should be able
0: to quote yeah, back to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh.
2: But anyway, that's 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 a long running crankiness of mine. That, but anyway, my bank is great because if I, as soon as I put up even the slightest, like no, no, you started this call, they went, very good, sir. Please phone back and your reference number is blah, 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 blah. And so I hang up. I go to my contact app. I click on the button I have saved before. And then I say, hi, I'm just returning your call. The case number is blah, blah, blah. And then we pick up where we left off. And now I can be sure that it really is there. And
0: they didn't give you the phone number to call when you were on the phone. Exactly. <laughs> I went into
2: my contact app and right. I clicked on the button. Or you look I on have the back saved.
0: of your credit card. There's a phone number there. You call that.
2: Precisely. Precisely. Okay, uh, so that's the worthy warnings. Like I say, I almost clicked past it because it just looked like a normal story. But no, that's a whole new twist. And I was like, oh, you evil, evil geniuses, you. So moving on to notable news then. Uh, Speaking of our friends, oh no, not quite yet speaking of our friends. But uh, first off, some not so good news. A very, very popular make of internet connected security camera is the Eufy camera. The good news is the bug has been fixed. The bad news is, for a while there, they were showing the wrong people the wrong camera feed. So you would log in and see some other person's
0: camera. Live feed with like kids and all sorts of things. There's my Eufy cameras, oh. Bart. <laughs> it's like I'm a, oh, uh, yay. a test case for everything <laughs> between my Vizio. Uh, thing. I, don't, I don't remember having seen an update. I will have to check that.
2: I no, I don't believe you have to do anything. I think basically the entire problem oh, the was in their end. back end. Oh, okay. and they have fixed their back end. Okay, so I, I don't, don't think you you have to do anything. It's I store just, my videos aware.
0: on my uh, network attached storage. They support that, ah. so I have. Uh, I don't think I even have uh, SIM cards in them. It goes directly to my um, to my uh, Synology. Oh, cool! Yeah, That's a
2: nice feature. So now, speaking of our friends, the Indian government, um, they're currently being sued for a new law they're trying to impose on WhatsApp. WhatsApp is being... Oh, no,
0: WhatsApp suing the Indian government. Oh, you said it the right way. Okay, sorry. Uh,
2: Yes. So the Indian government passed a law basically saying that private messages have to be traceable. So basically, they want to break end-to-end encryption. And like a stopped clock, WhatsApp are completely correct. And the Mozilla Foundation are signing up in agreement with WhatsApp, which is so, so rare for those two to be on the same side of anything. Yeah. So this is a case where the Indian government are trying to do that authoritarian thing of, oh, privacy, we shall have none of that. So because the India, the Indi- I think we got into it on Let's Talk Apple. It may have been with you, actually. India is a very strange country that doesn't classify very well. Because they're sometimes fantastically right and sometimes fantastically scarily wrong. Um, they're, you know f- They're future thinking And scarily authoritarian All mushed into One great big pile of grey So anyway That's uh, both sides of India There in today's conversation Meanwhile um, This is again well, I'm getting the bad news All out of the way first um, In the United Kingdom uh, A COVID-19 tracking app uh, Has been fined by regulators For turning contact
0: data Into sales leads <sighs> Are so dirty. This really wasn't really obviously wasn't the uh Apple Google COVID tracking no. app.
2: No, it was an app to certify that you it was either certification of vaccine or of test. I Can't remember which, but it was a certification of <coughs> something <coughs> rather than an app to, to do contact tracing. Ugh. But regardless, they should not have been and they have been fine. So I guess that uh, if you want to find a silver lining, regulators did their job, yeah. So this something. is why we can't have Anyway, those now we things. can move to good news. Yeah. So now we we switch to the good news. So one password have been busy. Goodness me, have they been busy. So first off, one password for Linux has been released. And they did not do this by half. They have full support for the vast variety of different desktop Linux flavors available, so KDE and um GNOME, they have both support. They have support for all sorts of underlying, commonly used APIs. They have packages pre-made for all the common distros. They have really, really, you know, they have support for like the system tray and all the different desktop OSs and stuff like this. I mean, Linux is such a such a broad and variable field to have this massive support from day one is genuinely impressive. And they have also contributed
0: a whole bunch of the
2: code they have used to get here to open source.
0: I loved reading this blog post because you can hear the absolute glee in Dave Tears' voice as he describes and then we did this and we did this and we did this look oh it was so fun. You know, and it's and it's ground up. It's not like they took it and ported it and mashed it around, tried to make it squish into Linux. It is it is from the ground up. And they said this is has been their number one requested thing. Pretty much since one password has existed, but it was a massive effort, so you yeah. know maybe the fact that they went to I, I know we all hate subscriptions, but there are companies who say we use this to improve the product, and they actually do it. It might be that it exists on Linux because they had the money to be able to invest, and now now they have a bigger revenue stream right because the Linux people are going to have to pay for it. it's not like this is an open source version of one password; this is a paid service, so um i think i think it's terrific and i just i just loved reading this blog post it was just such a delight
2: yeah and i mean you're right the the the, the sense of pride in a job well done is palpable Mm -hmm. and as i read the description of what they had done i was like okay you are right to be proud this is really good work here i was genuinely impressed this isn't just token linux support this is real linux support and then while they were busy poking at stuff um They've also added support for Touch ID from inside the browser plugins across the board, across all their OS's.
0: So, which has been a. L- I don't understand because I've been using I'm Touch ID forever with one password with my browsers. Then you have been
2: lucky because it does not work with Touch ID if you're an Edge user.
0: I haven't tried Edge. Because there's no it is, plugin for Edge,
2: there is for there is a plugin. There is a plugin for Edge, but it's standalone to the point that you can't use Touch ID. I have to enter my sodding password when I'm using Edge.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's not, there well, now? Apparently
2: not anymore. So there is now much more universal support for Touch ID, not just across some browsers on some OSs, but just across the board, including on Linux. Hmm. Um, and so it's with Windows Hello for the Windows people. So you have Windows Hello integration for the Windows people and Touch ID people for the Mac people and biometric support for the Linux people. So this I just the tapped Biometrics it API. and it
0: didn't offer me my finger
2: in Edge. I don't know if this is, f- I don't know if you have fully, I don't know how fully rolled out this patch is yet or this okay. update is yet, but this is the new feature they've announced. Cool. Cool. Yes, it is cool, and it's going to make me happy because it makes me perpetually cranky that that my age browser is, like, typing? Like an animal? <laughs> I have a perfectly good finger. Anyway, uh, and Twitter are also rolling out a new verifi- a verification program, which I was hoping I would be happy with, but basically, you know, Z series celebrities like us, no chance. Mm. Um, I'm hoping this is just a start and that we actually have the ability to get to... Being able to assert identity in a trustworthy way on Twitter for everyone, not just for celebrities, but baby steps, I guess. Still progress, I suppose. Uh, Top tips, then. Again, one password came across my password reader. You know, all of us could shuffle off this mortal coil at any moment, as Monty Python would have said it. Um, And it is actually important to think ahead to how our loved ones can access our digital life. So there's an excellent blog post on the OnePassword blog called Digital Estate Planning, How to Safely Transfer Your Digital Accounts. Mm. And it's, it's very practical. It doesn't assume you're a 1Password user, actually. It writes the advice in a generic way. And it does call back to, you could perhaps use a password manager. And even then, it's not saying use 1Password. It's, it's actually just being more generic than that. So it's actually, a, it's, a, it's genuinely, it's got into my list of uh, links that I keep f- for reference. Um, yeah. So whenever asked ask me for advice, it's, I can easily pass it on. It's definitely a good one to have in your back pocket to help others. Cool. Indeed. I, I'm more likely so
0: to do that than all of the other stuff you should do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know I've told this story before, but a long, long time ago, I gave my family a diagram explaining how the network was laid out and how the TVs worked within it. And my son, <laughs> my son or my daughter, I forget which one, looked at me and said, Mom, you don't have a will. yeah but you're gonna need to know how the network is laid out if i die you know that's what's really important i have a will now just so you know (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful
2: (laughs) probably the same one of the nice things actually about the fact that one password makes it so easy to store things like bank accounts and stuff in one password is that a lot of the stuff is like you know remember it's more than just password store all of the other stuff safely and i'm like yeah it's all in there it's great so anyway Uh, Excellent explainers, then, to cross my eye. Somewhat of a follow-up from last time, but uh, Adam Engst over on Tidbits has an excellent article explaining the easily confused difference between two completely separate features that sound very similar. Find my iPhone, or find my Mac, and the new Find My Network are completely different technologies. And you actually can control them separately on your iPhone or your Mac. So you can choose to, to take part in the Find My iPhone, Find My Mac, and you almost, unless you're using a test device that you plan on resetting all the time, you absolutely positively should, or you don't have activation lock. So you should always do the Find My iPhone, Find My Mac thing. And how you feel about the Find My network as a whole is an entirely separate question. You actually can control them separately. So there, and-
0: I didn't know that. So where does, yeah. where does Find My Devices fall? Is that in the Find My Network? So Find My
2: Devices is the made-up name Adam Engst gave, Find My iPhone, no, or Find no, My No, Find
0: My Devices is an official name from Apple. That's where AirTags go.
2: Oh, oh no, okay. So the, the Devices tab in your Find My app is where the Find My Network puts its stuff.
0: Okay. Because there's, there's Find My pe- there's find People, too. There's not two, there's really three
2: but the Find My People <laughs> actually are piggybacking off the Find My Device. Uh, when I'm finding you, I'm not finding your AirTag, I'm finding your iPhone.
0: Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. So the phone is you, the Mac and, yeah. and other devices, but then there's devices, which is... The, okay. That, I did not realize... It, it's did, a really well-written article.
2: Separately. It's well worth a read. Um, it, it, I actually read it twice to make absolutely sure stuff was straight in my head. Um, I read it once last week and I was like, oh, I've got to save this for the show. And then I read it again this morning. So I could write a blurb about it. And I enjoyed it both times.
0: I'm sure a lot of people yeah. think the finding a human thing is creepy, but I use it all the time. Yesterday, I needed to know when you were home and I uh, you've moved. And so I'm unfamiliar with what your home looks like on maps. So I thought, OK, this is not a critical time to find out when he's home. Let me study it while I know I don't really need it. Like the known good condition when I'm not yeah. in a panic. Right. What does then his place look like now? And then I decided to follow it using the uh, satellite view as you rode your bicycle back home. And it was really fun to see you were in the woods and you were down by the the Grand Canal on your bike and everything. Um, oh, I enjoy was. that. And I use it all the time with Steve to know when he's going to come back with coffee for me because he likes me to go to the door and let Tesla out to join him as soon as he gets home. And he's very sad if she right. doesn't come running out. So I need to know when he's coming.
2: Yeah. I, I, it's, and I, I mean, it, the, the privacy of it was actually really good. I love in the days where we used to meet people, you know, much. My parents are iPhone users, and when we agree to meet up somewhere, I just send the little thing of share note of share location for a day.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then because we would usually, the way it would usually work is, you know, we'd all be we're all scattered to the four winds in Ireland. Like we all live in different parts of Ireland, but we get together for a family occasion, which means that we're trying to meet up at a petrol station, or nowadays trying to meet up at a supercharger, <laughs> um, because you know, Dad will be at a supercharger because um, he has further to travel than me, uh, and. It's just really, really handy to be able to see where everyone is and to, to coordinate those simple things like just meeting up. Oh, yeah, no, we'll meet at the second supercharger because I see that we're still half an hour behind you or whatever. Don't wait for us or, you know, oh, do wait cool. for us and we're only five minutes away.
0: It's just really convenient. But you so don't yeah, have to totally have constant agree. tracking on that way.
2: Yeah. And if I'm meeting someone for coffee, I'll even share it for an hour. I just say, yeah, whenever your lecture's finished, we'll meet up and I'll just say, here's my location for the next hour. Yeah. So anyway, now, we're I also recommend
0: bit. always tracking Barry Falk because you need to know when he's just going to show up on your doorstep because he just shows up. Places. <laughs> I mean, he shows up in Switzerland. He shows up in my driveway. He's done it to a lot of people. So I've I recommended, you know, just getting Barry to his location.
2: Noted. For, for <laughs> it doesn't work, by the way, because anywhere. he turned it
0: off the day that he showed up at my front doorstep. So Because <laughs> he,
2: yeah, he knew. Of course he knew. Uh, And then the second excellent explainer is a link to a video explaining really well smart contracts, which is an aspect of the blockchain that isn't stupid, which is pleasantly rare. Hmm. Um, It's just really good. It's called, you know, smart contracts simply explained. And it does what it says on the tin. It's not long, very clear. And it makes a lot of sense to me. So Hmm. I thought, oh, good. I now get this. Uh, We also have some interesting insights. So last time we talked about uh, the Chip Alliance getting a new name and becoming Matter. Uh, And it's all actually based around a technology that used to be called the Zigbee Alliance. And we weren't quite sure exactly what it covered. Well, there's an excellent blog post linked here in the show notes that explains at what level of the hardware stack this protocol sits. Hmm. And the good news is it's up in the application layer which means it's not just about network connectivity, it's about API interoperability. So it's about meaningful data being shareable, not just can these hardware devices physically talk to each other, which is what was going on with Zigbee.
0: Huh, okay. So it
2: genuinely is about Alexa being able to understand that this is a camera. And so it's a standard way of saying, I am a camera, I offer you these functionalities. I'm a thermostat. I offer you these functionalities. So it's it's basically standard, effectively a standard API for all the different types of smart device so that they can communicate through a shared language.
0: Okay. Okay. yeah. Which is what we wanted, right? (laughs) I need to read this. I did tease two weeks ago that Micah Sargent was going to be on Chit Chat Across the Pond to talk about all of this. And, uh, unfortunately he had an emergency that caused him to not be able to be on the show. He will be on tomorrow. That is, he, he said, no matter what comes up, he's going to be on Chit Chat. Cause unfortunately he had to cancel twice. His, uh, oh, his air conditioning failed. It's been a mess for him, but he promised he's going to be on tomorrow. So with any luck, we're going to have a Chit Chat across the pond to go, uh, go really deep into some of this. I look forward to that actually, because Micah really knows his stuff when it comes to home automation and stuff. So
2: I definitely want to listen to that. I will be I will be tuned in. I will be... Oh no, not subscribed. What is it we have to do now? Followed? Stay followed? I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, it doesn't... Uh, I know you had a new ending and it was okay, but I still prefer stay subscribed.
0: But anyway. Yeah. I had no vocal fry at the end. I didn't have stay subscribed. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's a good word for that actually, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Anyway, um. Uh, So that's our one interesting insight. Uh, I also have a, just because it's cool, uh, Brian Krebs has a wonderfully simple suggestion that you may consider using to protect your Windows servers from Russian hackers. Now, it only works against Russian hackers. So one of the reasons there is so much malware coming out of Russia is because there's an unwritten rule in Russia. Don't hack anything Russian, and if the government asks, do whatever they say. And so that means that all of those cyber criminals. Are very careful not to accidentally unleash their malware on Russian targets because that will get the ire of the Kremlin. So how do you tell, if you're a piece of malware, where you are? Well, the way a lot of the malware does it is by checking the default keyboard. (laughs) And if it's one of the Cyrillic languages, which have a very different alphabet, right? The Russian alphabet does not look like our alphabet. And so all of those countries in the Russian sphere of influence, all the Ukraines and all of those countries, they all have keyboards that are not western european keyboards so if you set your default keyboard on your copy of windows to one of these you know it doesn't have to be russia it could be one of the neighboring countries then you will be passed over as if you had dubbed a little bit of sheep's blood on your door by the malware because it will go oh it it might be dangerous a wee bit difficult to type though no but just has to be your default it's not to be the one you actually use (laughs) So you know the way you can have the little drop down at the top with multiple languages? Maybe you don't as an American. Those of us who have multiple languages, we can actually have a little flag in the top in our Windows status bar, sorry, the bottom on Windows not at the top, on the Mac it's at the top, where you can switch to, like, keyboard language. So you have a default, which is normally set to the country you're in, but you can actually change it to anything. So you just set the default to being some Russian country and then just set it to English
0: and carry on. Okay, that's funny right there. I like it.
2: So I just thought it was brilliant. It's such a simple little hack, Right. Because they're just like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you only infect half the machines we, we land on. As long as we have enough money coming in, it's fine. And we don't want to get in trouble with the Kremlin. So we we'll just avoid Russian keyboards. <laughs> so there you go. Be a Russian keyboard. <laughs> anyway, that's almost a palate cleanser. But let's actually do some palate cleansing. So um, I have a palate cleanser I want to share with you because I thought of you immediately, Alison. A, it's a story we've talked about on this very show. And B, it's about Excel. And so that just means it's far too good uh, not to, not to mention. It's also from one of my favourite economists. I have a very small set of favourite economists. There are a grand total of two people fall into the category of Bart's favourite economists. Um, I have Paul Krugman, who's my pet Nobel laureate economist, who I want for expert information, and Tim Harford for interesting insights. He does a bunch of wonderful podcasts. Uh, he's British-based. But anyway, one of his podcasts I adore is called Cautionary Tales. And he has an episode entitled Wrong Tools Cost Lives. Mm. The basic cautionary tale is use the right tool for the job. And the example is a story we talked about here where the NHS managed to lose hundreds of thousands of COVID numbers because they were using the wrong version of Excel. But it's a way bigger story. So A, you get that story in detail. And B, it's expanded into a much bigger cautionary tale. It's just a superb episode about a story we've talked about before, and I'm hoping I will inspire people to subscribe to the podcast, because every single episode of that podcast has been superb, and they're now in their second season.
0: Oh, wow. I wouldn't have thought as, of listening to an economist being fascinating.
2: I, I know that it's a small set, but uh, Tim Harford is is very high on that list. Well, so far, you And you then have... Wrong. You have a a, a pilot cleanser you sent me earlier in the, was it earlier this week or last week? But anyway, it's really cool.
0: Yeah, I thought I knew this would be right up Bart's alley. Um, Jessica Dalton tweeted it out and gave the best description of it. It's something called Orbis from orbis.stanford.edu. And it's a free resource that estimates how long a journey might have taken in the Roman Empire. You can choose season, mode of transportation, priority, speed, economy, etc. And it also estimates costs and difficulties. (laughs)
2: I mean, it's, I'm sort of sorry that Dublin wasn't in the Roman Empire because I would have loved to be able to check how long would it have taken our family to emigrate from Belgium, from Antwerp to Dublin? How long would that have taken in Roman times? I'm guessing we wouldn't have popped home for, you know, for a long weekend. <laughs> I'm imagining it would have taken us way more than a long weekend to just get there. So anyway, it's, this, is, it's uh,
0: cool. this is exactly the kind of thing you would like. I don't know if people remember quite a few years ago, you told us about an effort you were working on to map all of where the trains used to be in, uh, in Europe.
2: Well, not the whole of Europe, it was Belgium and Ireland. Because, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah it's just, I, I discovered basically that railway lines leave like scars in the landscape. And even decades after lines have been closed, you, if you just zoom out on Google Earth, there they are. Like, the lines never go away. As in that, you know, I don't mean the railway lines, I mean the lines in the oh. landscape. So yeah, absolutely fascinating. I love, uh, I love, I am, the actual word is cartophilic. I love all things maps. <laughs> so I'm a cartophile. I like it. I like anyway, it. and then our third tip we've already done, which is the app unexpectedly. So I just have popped the link to Alison to include in the show notes.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Well, this was a lot of fun. Indeed, it was. Some and, uh, nasty oh, news, but other other fun stuff for sure.
2: Yeah, we, no, I, I do my best to end on a happy note. So uh, there we are. But remember, folks, it's always important to stay patched so you stay secure.
0: Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. And you know what? You could look in the show notes to hear all this or to see all this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions like Joe from the Northwoods did and your Everything is Fiddly recordings like we had last week. Your comments and suggestions, you can do all that by emailing me at Allison at Podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a patron? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to do a one-time donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal want to join our community and chat with me and other great Nocilla Castaways, you can do that in Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack or Facebook at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5pm Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nosilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.